Welcome to the Art and Science of Learning podcast, where we explore the best practices, technologies, and research shaping the future of learning in the workplace and beyond. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. In each episode, I speak with industry leaders, academics, practitioners, and learning designers about different aspects of learning and development. These conversations weave together insights from around the world and across industries to inform and inspire innovations in lifelong learning. The physical spaces we move in have a great impact on how we learn and work. Purposefully designing these spaces to spark conversations and enable learning can completely transform an organization and the individuals in it. In the fall of 2023, I had the pleasure of visiting a unique school in Switzerland. Situated in the beautiful Swiss mountains on the border of Austria and Liechtenstein, the International School of Rheintal has just gone through a massive transformation. Being a well-established school, they had the unique opportunity to build a completely new campus from scratch. And in doing so, they built it to truly embody their learning philosophies and principles. But not only did the new physical school have design features that help their students learn, it also provides teachers and staff a working environment to empower their professional practice. In this episode, I speak with Liz Free, the CEO of the school, who has led it through this massive transformation. We speak on a variety of different topics, including leadership practices that are central to leading any organization through a massive change. And not only a massive change, but through very unpredictable times. Most of this project actually took place during the pandemic, which is an incredible feat on its own. But she led this building and transition in a way to create a culture where it was possible to bring everyone together in the organization from students, staff and teachers, bringing them together in order to enable a collaborative design of this new school campus, something that any leader would aspire to be able to do. We also discuss many unique features of the school that enable learning, such as the low sensory zones that were designed in consultation with the Autism Society, the wonderful Lego building stations throughout the school that invite students to work together to imagine new structures and practice their creativity. And this was done in collaboration with the Lego group, as well as addressing the perfectionist mindset, helping students to move away from a perfectionist mindset to understand the learning process. And not only do they do this by teaching the learning process and speaking about perfectionism, but they also build it into design by having tabletops that are erasable so that students can really sketch out ideas as they go along, to having workstations in their art room draws the paint into it, encouraging to students to be free to add these stations and not worry about making a mess. There's also the wonderful way that the building itself incorporates the natural world, a lot of natural light, internal gardens, a variety of different ways in which the building itself is melting into, into the natural world around it. So we discuss a lot of these wonderful features, and leadership strategies that helped her to make this project a success. Liz Free is CEO and director of the International School Rheintal, an IB continuum school. She is a globally recognized educator with an expertise leading some of the world's most successful schools in leading teacher professional learning at Oxford University Press, as well as being a founding director of the International Leadership Academy in The Hague. 
Alongside this work, Liz is a founding trustee of the global charity Women Ed and board member for the Swiss Group of International Schools and Tess Global. She has authored many publications, including the International Perspectives chapter of the Amazon number one best-selling book, 10% Braver, Inspiring Women to Lead Education, as well as the book called Being 10% Braver, and has also written for educational publications such as Schools Week, International Schools Magazine, and The Independent Schools Magazine. Liz has been identified as a global influencer in international education by ISC. As a visible school leader, Liz advocates for the profession and speaks around the world on the theme of leadership development, realizing the potential of the profession, and global school workforce. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, Liz. Welcome back to the podcast. Hello. When was the last time we talked? When did we do the last one? A long time ago. A long time ago, about two years ago. Yes, <laughs> it has been a while. It's great to have you back on. And it was so wonderful to see you a while back when I went to visit you at your beautiful school, brand new building. So thank you very much for welcoming me so warmly. It was lovely to have you and to, to kind of have a few moments. Actually, seeing it through your eyes is really interesting as well, because I'm so in it. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting to say that it, it is always different to see it from a new perspective. You are really, truly like just finished opening the school in August. And that was the opening of the new building, wasn't it? It was. I think we're now we moved in on the staff came in from the 1st of August and then students from around the 15th of August. So completely brand new campus. And we opened by the skin of our teeth. It is a fantastic, beautiful, beautiful campus. And I loved how learning is really woven into the building itself, embodies physically your learning principles, which I absolutely enjoyed. And we'll talk about more in this in this episode. Before we get into it, can you tell us a little bit about the school, the culture and the education philosophy that you have? So I'm at the International School Rheintal, which is in a tri-region area of Switzerland. So we're on the border with Liechtenstein, um, Austria, and we're about um, half an hour or so, a bit longer, maybe 40 minutes from Germany. So our students are from the international sector with parents on expatriate contracts. And we also have local families that have kind of an international outlook, usually their dual nationality, um, and they they are committed to the idea of uh, an international education. So I have about 100, just over 180 students now, and so we are age 3 to 18 and an IB continuum school, which means we're an IB school all the way through. Wonderful. And a very highly ranked IB school as well, which is wonderful. So very successful. We descri describe our school as small and mighty. Yes. As, <laughs> we punch above our weight. But actually, that's one of the really interesting things about the school is that I've worked in international schools with 3000 students. And this is the smallest school I've ever, I think, ever been in, let alone led. And this is growing. It's 142 when I joined in 2020. And so this school is really aspirant but it's doing something quite unique it's offering an international education with an international mindset and a global workforce but it's doing it in a rooted community kind of like I grew up in Wales in the mountains and there everyone knew everybody you know you go down the street and you've got they're all interrelated it's it's very much strong strong roots and this school has that so it has a strong sense of local identity, whilst also having all the benefits of an international education. So it's a truly unique school. 
That's fantastic. Yes, and you really felt that as well as as we were walking through and meeting the other teachers, students, and everyone comes from so many different places, and it's fantastic. But one of the things that I really enjoyed learning about was the way that in your school philosophy and what you really help students understand, I really focus a lot helping them understand the learning process and to move away from perfectionism, which I think is just incredibly important. And so often teachers and, and school leaders know the learning process, of course, but don't necessarily teach it. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how you do that? Well, as educators, if there's one thing we do for our students is that we empower them to be learners. If we fail in that, then our students cannot be academically or globally successful in what they do or holistically. So we have to teach the process of learning. Now, we do that in many, many different ways in schools. But one of the biggest things that I'm really struck by, that particularly amongst women and young girls, is a focus on the need to be perfect. And we talk a lot about there's so much data around it. As you know, I'm a trustee with uh, the Women Ed charity, and so I'm a great advocate encouraging women and supporting women into education leadership. So we realize the potential of our global profession. And what we know about learning is that learning is imperfect and it is not easy. If you're, It's like if you go to um, a music festival or you go and listen to an orchestra play, what you're hearing is not something they've just done. That is something that is the product of their learning. And so we try as a school to really make the process of learning explicit. So we talk a lot about, you know, being in the, the, the pit, the pit of unknowing, mm-hmm. uh, which is a painful, painful place to be in. I'm frequently in that pit. And that, that actually, this is where great ideas and great thinking happens. And to make that a safe space, because it's an uncomfortable space. So we're trying more and more so to be explicit about the learning process. And I think I showed you one of the really physical examples in the school is we were looking at the art and design space, because where where else can you see the process of learning more than actually in those subjects, art and design? I love that. And we had some beautiful designs for the spaces. We've got beautiful light, high ceilings, four meter high ceilings, and everything was stunning. When I was talking with the team and the art teacher, we were like, art is messy. You know, it's not meant to be this, although I quite like order. You know, I do quite like all the paints in the right order, the right colors, all of that. However, the actual process of creating something truly original is going to involve practice. It's going to involve mistakes. It's going to involve... Uh, messiness. And so one of the things we did is such a little thing, but it's brilliant. Um, The team we worked with, Space Oasis, who are the interior design company we worked with, they talked to us about how can we, yes, we want it to be beautiful, rah, rah, rah. But what if we made the actual surfaces on the tables themselves absorb the materials that are being used in the process of learning? So that paint soaks into it. Whereas normally, what do we try and do if we get paint on something? We try and wipe it away. Mm-hmm. What do we do when students sometimes make errors? In the primary school, you'll often see the eraser. I'm going to say rubber, but I'm aware of the Canadian American <laughs> reference here. The eraser. That's right. <laughs> you get that eraser out. And what are you doing? You're, you're getting rid of it. So the message that this sends is that this shouldn't be seen, that this is something that is not palatable for our to be seen. So we want to change that. You know, I'm on a mission to ban erasers. Actually, I don't think we should have them anywhere because we should celebrate the mistakes, because if we're making mistakes, we're on the journey to learning. And through those mistakes, what is one of those quotes? You know, you'll fail far more times than you'll ever succeed. And our students are successful and will be successful. But that's because they're resilient. And so in the the building itself, we've tried to create, yes, 
perfection. I want in many, many ways, but in perfection is imperfection. And so that that's something that we're trying to do better at. I really like that because as you said in that pit, how did you just call it? The pit of despair? I, it's uh, pretty much that or the pit of unknown. But at least pit of unknown. It does feel like it despair. It is pretty despairing. <laughs> but it is, it feels very lonely. That's a, it's a very lonely place unless you know it is part of the process. And if you know that actually this is part of the process and you get through it, then it's not as scary and uh, and you can deal with the discomfort. So I love the fact that you're teaching uh, the students about the process and also embedding it into, into those tables, for example, and trying to <laughs> physically show that it's okay and there's a, there's a process to it. We don't need to erase it. There's a lot of beautiful design in the building that really embodies learning and the learning philosophy. Can you tell me some of your favorite ones? I mean, I, I really enjoyed that in the art room, but what are some of the other? And you had the erasable tabletops as well. We do. Before yeah, we, we move shouldn't on. erase anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we do. We have the, the dry wipe um, tables because, again, we, we wanted learning to be visible everywhere and mm -hmm. also to be that you can try stuff out, you know, that that doodling and um, uh, visually, particularly mathematics, visually representing your thinking is an extremely important part of the mm -hmm. process. And I think I mentioned that obviously because the Oxford link, I was at the, in the maths department, what do they call it? It's like student, student lounge. You have a, there's a fancy name for it in Oxford because of course it would be different to everyone else. Uh, but they, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> in the maths department. So I went into the student lounge and there was everywhere was dry wipe, the walls, the tables. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And this is what we're offering at university undergraduate level. Why aren't we doing that with four and five-year-olds? Why aren't we doing that with 12 and 13-year-olds? So we have we have the dry wipe tables. And it's interesting to see how my students are, are using them. In maths, they're using them a lot. In other subjects, it's more tentative. So I'm interested to see how that evolves from what we intended, what we thought might happen, and then what actually does happen. So we have we have our, our dry white tables. The building itself is an amazing construction. It's part of an ecologically sensitively designed campus. So we worked with an architect. Uh, we had an architect competition, and the architect that won is from Zurich, and he is famous as Bayat Kampfen. He's famous for his work around um, environmental buildings and sustainable development. So he has never, ever worked on a school before. <laughs> Very interesting learning now. experience for I him I wasn't well. laughing. In yeah. the process, there were times when I was definitely in the pit. And uh, because he would be really asking challenging questions that as an educator, I assumed were obvious. Right. Like we have to have high barriers so children don't fall off steps and things like right. that. Um, so every single thing was up for negotiation, every single thing in the process. So every part of the building has been through a process of interrogation from a design perspective, from an environmental ecological perspective, from um, an aesthetic uh, perspective, and from an educator perspective. And with our educators hat on, we we were really, the whole thing has been incredibly challenging because there's what we do and then there's what we want to do. <laughs> So when we looked at our spaces, for example, our kindergarten, we we said we wanted it to be um, a fluid space where we can have continuous provision all the way through, that there's no barrier between the inside and the outside, mm -hmm. that we have low sensory zones. So we worked with the Autism Society to help us design that in a mezzanine. And all those ideas, we 
designed a beautiful kindergarten. All these ideas built around a constructivist theory and pedagogy in terms of how we think children learn. And then one of the teachers said, yes, but can I have a door on it? Because <laughs> I wanted to block the space because of the noise. So right. really practical things that then we're like, well, if we put a door on it, does it do what we thought it would do? And there was a constant tension between teaching in the way we've always taught and using this as an opportunity to rethink how we design teaching and learning in an everyday way. And so I think I think when I look at the space now, our kindergarten is beautiful and an, an amazing, stimulating place to be. I love the fact that we have multi-purpose spaces all the way through the campus, from seats in the corridors to our learning hub, which has the high tables with the, you know, plug in with your Mac, bring your coffee. Uh, we have the coffee machine for students, controversial, I know, we're not advocating. <laughs> caffeinated <laughs> options, it's all good. <laughs> so we wanted to try and create a pre-university feel for our older students. Mm-hmm having a really strong primary practice within the primary school and compared to our previous campus which was an old people's home it was really hard to have age-appropriate spaces so I, I love the fact that when you walk through the the corridors there are these like little nooks and crannies that you'll find students I love the hives we have the you saw the hives as well I loved the hives the kindergarten and in the library in the learning hub and they um, literally look like little beehives yeah. in the wall so that yeah. children can just feel a bit bundled up in a little cave almost. Exactly. It's all around the spatial schemas yes, uh, work exactly. around early years. How do I want sense? one of those in my home. It well, looks so do you know, the amazing thing, I, I don't, and you saw it as well when you were here, is we when we put those in, it was kindergarten, early primary, we thought would use them. But when you go now, you'll find find our myp students our middle years are sort of 11 12 years old to 14 15 love them so when you go up to the learning hub you'll see them curled up there with books with their laptops sat on their knees um in these beautiful little hives it's very it's very it's very cute and it looks very very comfortable as well and (laughs) i mean i again it's a space that gives a little bit of privacy and a feeling of coziness and the same as the low sensory zone. Can you just talk a tiny bit about that for anybody who doesn't know why that's important? Because- well, it's, in, it's not just about kindergarten. So through the school, we see in our own school, and this was through COVID and following COVID, we've seen a rise of um, mental health uh, issues, particularly around anxiety. And we see that with students, um, older students, who maybe have been school refusing, and then they they join us as a safe space. And... What we see is in the younger students within the early years, and any early years teacher would tell you this, is that children can get sensory overload. And in Mm. a kindergarten, my goodness, if you want to see stuff happening, just stand in a kindergarten for 10 minutes. And like the whole world is there in front of you. Um, Amazing, interesting things are happening. It's hyperstimulation. And that can inhibit learning. It can be overwhelming. And with older students, we start to see that kind of morph into anxiety related issues. So within our kindergarten, we thought, right, we've got this amazing active indoor outdoor space, there's stuff happening, you can climb into things over things under things, we've got, you know, digital interactive boards, we've got wobbly stools to help with um, developing core, all this wonderful stuff. But when it gets to for our three year olds, you know, they've had their lunch, and actually, what they really need is a low sensory time, they need a little nap. <laughs> maybe the teachers do too um but they <laughs> so we we had this mezzanine space and so what we did is we used the neutral colors within it 
Originally, I thought it should be dark, but they actually, when we we did further research into it, just neutral colors. So we're looking at the grays, the kind of light blues mm-hmm. um, spaces. And then we had blackout spaces within it as well. So we've got a blackout tent, lots of discussions about child protection and safeguarding about that, but it's fine because you can see into it. We're good. Mm-hmm. Um, so ch- children can climb into that. And that means that they're, we're reducing the visual stimulation. So this starts to um, slow breathing down, reduce possible anxiety, and then helps prepare students ready for learning. In the kindergarten, we have that in the, so we worked with the Autism Society. We got some advice from them via Space Oasis about how to do that, which is actually designed more for autistic students Um, But we took the same principles into kindergarten. And then we also worked to develop a well-being centre because our students told us that they, in our community surveys, the one thing they thought we did really badly is when they were sick, they didn't feel like we were offering the care that they would like. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is in our old campus, they'd be sat on the sofas next to, re- next to reception with a sick bucket or waiting for their parents, everybody walking past them, great big bright fluorescent lights. It wasn't very nice. So what we've done in this campus we, is within the campus, we have the wellbeing center. And within that, we have the standard medical room with all the stuff you'd expect in a medical room. And then next door to that, we have the quiet room, <laughs> imaginatively named. So <laughs> room is where you can um, students can at any any not kindergarten because obviously they're younger but our older students can go at any time and it's got a beautiful calming wall graphic you can lie on the, the sofas in there you can just lie and just be still and calm and also even little things that we had to change the lighting so we had dimmable lighting and again that seems like a little thing but unless you've thought about it it's not automatically included in the design of your buildings We've tried to create what that looks like in the early years, then all the way through into the teenage years as well. Fantastic. A lot of the things that we need in early years in a different way is also needed in later years, but is often overlooked. And as you said, some you engaged with the Autism Society because low sensory rooms are important for autistic children. But in fact, whenever you're designing with neurodiversity in mind, it's for everyone. So as you said, it's for everyone experiencing anxiety or different types of stress. With all the different designs, what do you think of as one of your favorite designs? It's, it's really interesting because I like different parts for different reasons. One of the spaces that I really love and where we haven't fully realized the potential of it yet, but we developed from a staff perspective, all of the staff in my previous campus um, all had a desk or an office somewhere. Because it would have been an old people's home, there were lots of small rooms and like cupboards. And you open the, the door and there's a member of staff in there. So we had all these like nooks and crannies. But the consequence of that is, is that teachers would be teaching in their classroom. Then they would go to their secret desk or, or wherever in the cupboard. And it was really isolating. And when we think of learning as a collaborative endeavor, we have to develop a culture within our staff where we are also learning we have to model that and actually it's not even about having to model it we need to to be able to be effective practitioners we've got to be reflective we've got to look at what's happening elsewhere and we have to learn we can learn from each other so we created uh, we have the learning hub for students which incorporates the library plus study spaces and um, digital spaces and i recreated the same thing but called the staff hub and I took out all of the, the offices. I'm laughing because everyone is mortified. Everyone says it's a great idea until you say they don't no longer have an office. And then they're like, <laughs> it's terrible. Um, but what we've done with that is we zoned it. We zoned it into three sections. So we had 
one section which is uh, designed with docking stations. We're a, a Mac-based school, so I've got widescreen set up with docking stations. So staff can come, there's about six of them, and they can just come plug in and they're good to go to do bigger work. And so that means they've got better facilities than they had before. I then have the, the kind of quick areas. If you've just got 20 minutes and you need to catch up on emails, we have the high tables like Starbucks with the plug-in for you, so your devices charge. And then we have the collaborative area where we have groups of tables that can be moved into lots of different configurations that can be used for staff development or collaborative working. And so I think that space is going to be really interesting because it's a cultural shift. It's it's kind of going from teaching with your door classroom door closed to your office with your, your door closed into now let's open up our entire, use our space to open everything up. So we're always have the opportunity to learn and share in the informal conversations that happen over coffee. So that I like that space. And I think that's really interesting. The students tell me, because we, we recently asked them what they love and what they don't like. They love the learning hub which is the student equivalent of this space. Right from the youngest ones to the oldest ones, they love being in it. It's just, it's a space that is cozy and inviting. We've got carpet over the, so we've got one section that's more primary focused and that's got um, trees put within it, not real trees, although they are environmentally sensitively sourced, rah, rah, rah. Um, but we have those to make it a bit more intimate. And we have the grass on the top, pretend grass, carpet, actually. Um, but it means they can climb over the bookcases and sit on top of bookcases. They can go into the hives. And then for our older students, we have sofas with laptop, little laptop tables in these cozy corners. So that seems to be the, the place to be what students would say they love. Absolutely lovely space, and I could see that they really enjoyed using them. We did speak several times about asking students and asking the, the staff and teachers, and this was very much a collaborative design. So can you tell me a little bit, how did you lead this to be a collaborative design? It's a very unique opportunity that you had an established school and then built a completely new campus, and you really incorporated their voices. Can you talk a little bit about how you made it possible? Well, I, th I think most people, if they looked at it on paper, would say that this is bonkers. That's the word we use as a British person. <laughs> it's challenging. You're you're inviting in a lot more complexity and a lot more uh, discussion and possibly tensions. In the end, it certainly results in a much better design. But how did you make this? Because it is true. It is very difficult. Well, the, one of the... It's one of the greatest challenges of this project and also the greatest strength, I think, of this project is that everyone had to be involved. I had at that point, I'm now like, I think, 47 staff, but about 40 staff in the school. Um, I'm the director. I've got a head of senior school. I've got a head of primary school now. They weren't in place when I arrived. Actually, that structure's come in. I've got a head of HR and finance. And that's it. That's our senior team. I don't have a buildings manager. I don't. <laughs> so there was no one else to do it. So it had to be us. And one of the things that was really important for me is that I knew that I, I knew, I know what I know about education and what my core beliefs are. But I also know that the majority of stuff I don't know. So when I'm, when we're, if it's just on me, so I don't know, say we're thinking about the design of how do we design the music and drama space, for example, or how do we do a multi-purpose gym? What floor should it be? Should it be sprung? Should it not be sprung? It goes on and on. Is is that I knew that I would have to pull on the expertise of every single person in the team and and beyond. It wasn't, it wasn't just that. That that's the only way that we could create 
a building that was sustainable, and I mean sustainable, but environmentally, but I also mean it in terms of, you know, if I'm here for, I committed 10 years to the school when I joined and whoever comes after me, I don't want, you know, I often have these nightmare, like three o'clock in the morning when I I'd wake up, be like, oh my God, what does this look like in 20 years? Um, for me, I think I would have failed if somebody turns around and said, oh, my goodness, why on earth did they design the building in this way? What were they thinking? So how can we be as flexible in our space whilst also making it fit, fit for purpose now and today? So what I did is every single decision, every single thing, I mean, down to every single um, almost bolt and screw, every single part of this campus, not just the, the, the uh, interior design, which is what you mostly see when you walk around. But the physical design of the building is everything that can be formed a group to start off with. So I thought, right, I need to have the key people in the room for all decisions. So I had the chair of our board was in the, the group. Um, I had my site, a site manager that I had. So he is like the caretaker. He was in the group. Um, and I was able to bring in like the IT person. I brought in different people. And we decided we would be the core group. Every single decision goes through that group. Because we started off a bit wobbly. And it was like, ah. So we, that's what we decided. We then decided if it was going to be a specialist space like the gymnasium, anyone who ever works in the gymnasium joins, uh, becomes like a, a mini, mini committee feeding into that group. So music and drama people, anything to do with AV and sound and speakers, there's like the mini group. Anything to do with early years, anyone who works in early years, they're in that group. It doesn't mean they meet and we have these endless meetings because I can't stand that. But it means anything that would come in. So we'd have the architect might just say, uh, we've decided that we will make the ceilings 4.2 meters in the kindergarten. Great. And we're going to put the lights in and the lights will fit um, 30 centimeters below the ceiling. So anything, any decision about kindergarten, we'd send that documentation to the early years team and ask for their feedback. They then feed back to us. If their response is, that's marvelous, keep going. And we agree as a group that that's sensible, we carry on. If they say, well, that's ridiculous because a child in kindergarten at age three years old is less than one meter tall, which means they're going into a giant space, which is really intimidating. We need to do something different with the lights. Then it comes back into the group and we have this iterative process about every single decision that we make. Now, the challenge of that is that there's a huge amount of information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we had to be really disciplined and efficient in how we worked. So we would meet every week on a Tuesday as a group. We have one hour and we power through, power through, power through, power through. If extra work had to happen, we'd allocate it to a particular person. I don't know, Sadie, there was an issue about how many um, how many data points should there be in a classroom? <laughs> so our IT manager, we said, right, you go and talk to all your friends who were IT managers in international schools around Europe. How many data points should there be? And then he would come back to the group with that information. We pass it on to the architect. So it was a really detailed process, but we were able to distribute the responsibilities to the people who had the most knowledge quickly and for them to then use their networks to get the information that we needed. Um, we delivered the campus on time. I started in 2020, summer 2020, when the architect competition started and we um, broke ground in October 2021. I think it was October 21. So it was a fast project to be open and ready to go in that time. It's over 30 million investment in terms of francs. So it's a big project. It's 10,000 square meters. Um, and we also wanted to meet 
really ambitious environmental targets so that the CO2 emissions in the process of building the campus um, were considered to be world-class and quite innovative. So even our air systems are innovative um, in terms of emissions. So we, you know, we have the solar panels on the roof. We've got the seeded roof as well on the, the, the main roof of the building. There's all kinds of amazing things about the building that brought this extraordinary expertise from the architect team that knew things that we didn't know. And then we brought our local and global expertise as educators. And then we negotiated in the middle. Fantastic. It is really, really incredible. So many leaders are trying to have a collaborative way of working in, in a way that brings in the feedback and the ideas from the entire team. But as you described it, you have to be very efficient, which you've described well. But of course, the first thing is that there's a lot of conflict and there's a lot of friction, which makes this very, very challenging. Can you tell me how did you deal with that? How were you able to mitigate the conflict that inevitably comes up. Yes. And conflict every single meeting we would talk about something. We'd have so many different ideas. Like with everything actually, it all comes down to the culture that you've created and you model in your school. So and that really clear sense of purpose. So we the alignment of how what are we trying to achieve and whose responsibility is it? So our purpose was to create a world-class, environmentally conscious international community international school in this beautiful part of Switzerland that's why it's on time as well because it's in Switzerland everything's on time in Switzerland <laughs> but anyway I'm not going to take the the glory for that I think Switzerland can have that uh, but the um so because we were all invested in that process from the beginning the staff were involved from, from the architect competition we took all of their feedback there was a, and we also kept everybody informed along the way. So it wasn't a free for all where, you know, every single member of staff had to sign everything off. It wasn't. It was kindergarten would give their feedback. It comes back to the group. It goes to the designer, goes to the architect, comes back to the group. Our investors, which is a, a trust within the region a foundation, they obviously confirm that they're happy, we're happy. And then we proceed from there. Once a decision was made, it was then communicated to everybody. And that was the decision. But it came, I think the the way we were able to get through conflict, I mean, there were stand-up rows. You know, you'd be in, in the middle, I mean, like fighting your, I mean, sometimes the, I had to, the biggest fight I had actually was over the height. I told you this about the, we've got um, three stories through the building and it's open um, either side. So you've got three and we've got high ceilings. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at a, gosh, I don't know, maybe a 10 meter drop either side. And the huge debate about the height of what those barriers should be at the side of the stairs. Hmm. And the architect wanted it to be lower because of the aesthetic. Um, and I was like, no, I'm a primary school teacher at heart. We've got to have high ceilings. I don't want anyone going over the, the edge. Absolutely. So that, you know, and, and there are some things for me that were non-negotiable. So that was um, a massive battle, actually, to get that through. Because it was like, in Switzerland, this isn't an issue, rah, rah, rah. Um, what I said is we're held to international standards and this is why I think it needs to be this. And there were some things that I had to say, I'm not, I cannot budge on that. You know, I will not budge on that. That is, a, a, if we're going to have drops of this kind of height, then I need at least, I actually wanted 1.3, but I got 1.2 in the end. Um, so, okay, that's okay. And actually that's higher than even um, uh, tall, uh, what are they called? What are they called? Tall buildings. Skyscrapers. Oh, that, yeah, that, well, that's in America. That's even bigger than I was thinking. But even <laughs> right. buildings in Switzerland, the, the one point, um, uh, you don't need more than 1.2. So that's interesting. Okay. But anyway, that's different. So um, one of the things that we did is there was always clear purpose. And 
always a genuine sense that we would do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And people trusted. Sometimes we had to make decisions that were not everybody's favorite decision. Mm-hmm. But the big one, <laughs> one of the biggest ones is the removal of microwaves. We have no microwaves on the campus. Um, in our kitchens, they weren't put in. We've got steamers put in instead of microwaves for okay. uh, staff particularly. That was an unpopular decision because people wanted microwaves and it was made on environmental grounds and that was explained we took the the feedback was taken on from staff it was reviewed with all the relevant people the designers the architects and the decision was made considering the environmental values of our building to stick with steamers Mm -hmm. now what I feel about this the reason why staff came and, and the wider community our students came on the journey with us is they knew that when we made a decision like that even if it was an unpopular decision it was because it was considered to be right having considered all of the evidence so I think when it comes to having conflict is that we you create a safe space for conflict to happen you then create a process to have resolution and resolution doesn't mean that everybody agrees, but everyone accepts that the path we're going to take, we take together and we walk that path together. So at the end, I feel that people feel valued. They feel heard. They feel that they are invested in this project. And part of this, I think every person in our community feels like this building belongs to them. Our students know every single part of it. And they were part of choosing the, you know, even the stools or the chairs they sit on or the position of things. So I think the learning for me when I go forward and it's not new but it reinforces it is the power of communication is you have to have a really clear frame for making sure that everybody has the information that they need at the right time when they need it so not giving everything but giving it enough so that staff have the information without being overwhelmed so it's that tension between informing you know it's standard stuff isn't it is who's responsible who's accountable who needs to be informed is that you're really clear about that and everybody knows what that is So clarity about why you're doing it, who's doing it, who's responsible, what the communication process will be, and that everybody knows that we're all doing it for the right reasons and for the same goals. So alignment. That is absolutely fantastic. Yes, those are such important points. They're ones that are so easy to miss because it's busy. It's there's a lot happening. There's a lot of moving parts. But that essence of how to keep that together, all, all of what you just said, the communication the alignment, keeping people informed, having a strategy on how to deal with uh, conflict and making that very transparent are all incredibly important and, uh, and, and, and challenging to do. I like what you said about the shared purpose. So people really know what the purpose is. You're bringing in evidence to, to support that. But that culture, which before this even started, the shared purpose was really clear for everyone. Yes, I think when you're under pressure, which of course we are all the time in education, when you're under time pressure like this as well, there's got to be trust at the heart of it. And the relationships that you have with people, it's everything. Uh, I can't remember who it was that talked about watering the plants as a leader that you, he described as a head teacher that he would walk around the school um, watering the plants. And the reason he did that was so that he could meet everybody and talk to people along the way and check in and have those informal conversations that then come together in formal conversations. It's the relationships, it's trust. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's a good idea as a school leader to walk around watering the plants because everyone will think you've got nothing else to do. (laughs) (laughs) They'll be like this, they they don't know anything about teaching. They're just walking around the building. Um, So so doing it with purpose is a good idea. Yes, it's a very good Um, metaphor. So I, I'm not sure like the plants is the right way to go, but the but the idea that you check in, so those check-ins, mm-hmm. 
And that's what I love about this space now is we have so many communal spaces where we see each other more than the previous campus. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to engineer it a bit before, but I think we've got a, a yeah, strong sense of identity. Our mission, vision, purpose is really, really clear and feeds through into all of our decision-making. And we show that and we evidence and we talk about it, which means that people believe us. They believe us when we say that we, we're going to do this because of that and that. There's a genuine trust within our community. So that's about ethical leadership as well, isn't it? Absolutely. That's really good. The result is a fantastic space where the students, the staff, educators, everyone had their voices heard and input, which is an incredible achievement. But now you are settling into the school. And we talked a little bit about this tension between theory and practice and also a change in cultures. People need to sort of change behaviors and change their routine because it is a completely new building. Can you tell me a little bit about how you're settling in and what are some surprising things that you found? I think the funniest thing that I found, and it's not funny really, is my PYP teachers at the primary years. In the design of the spaces, because I mentioned where I be, so it's constructivist theory, so students constructing their own understanding, is we design those spaces to embody those principles. So we had like the, the cave area, like the water or the watering hole where we'd all come together. We have these areas where we go off and do independent work. Then we have the discovery tables, which are beautiful in the middle of the classroom, um, which are spaces that children will, will congregate around. We've got perspex um, openings to drawers within the discovery benches that have interesting things around the unit of inquiry all these and we were like whoa it's so beautiful we have these beautiful sofa I mean it's stunningly beautiful (laughs) Uh, but one of the things that the PYP teacher said is that we in the areas where there's independent working is that an IB education if we're really talking about constructivist theory and students following a line of inquiry then our spaces will be really dynamic all of the time. So I will never need to have everybody sat down at a desk with a chair by themselves at any point. So let's use the space differently. Within one week of being in the new building, I had demands of extra stools. We got the wobble stools in the uh, primary school. Everyone realized, and then they stole them because we've got these breakout spaces. So they stole the tables, stole the stools from the breakout spaces. So we realized pretty quickly that there are absolutely times when the whole class will be independently working. And there are times when students, you know, we talked earlier about autistic students or neurodivergent students, that actually having a physical place and space that they um, feel secure in and is consistent for them is really important. So whilst we'd had great intentions about these dynamic spaces, we realized pretty quickly that the intention and the practical living of that is different. So I've now got to order in about an extra 30 stools and 30 tables outside of budget, I might add. Uh, (laughs) That was a really, that was a really practical example of best of intentions Education and pedagogically, absolutely right. But from a day-to-day lived experience, we needed to do something a little bit different. So, so that's just that's just one example. There are loads, loads of different doors opening different ways. So, and it's all. I think we've got over ninety-eight items on the snagging list at the moment. Um, I've got a list of over fifty items of requests for things because we suddenly. I mean, we realised when we moved in that we had no bins. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> well, wow. 
<laughs> right. It's a small thing, but important thing. <laughs> yes. And then the conversation was, is, well, we're in, in, you know, we're really focusing on the environmental awareness and um, sustainable um, responsibility, sustainable development and responsibility in our school. So if I just go and buy a load of bins and put them in every room, is that really what we want to do? So really interesting conversations around that and what we, what we recycle, how we recycle, which we not had the opportunity to have those conversations in our previous campus. And whatever we set up now, we then sustain that for the future. So load, there's just loads, loads and loads. But the the wobble stools and the tables, I think, are the, one of the funniest ones. But I think this highlights a really important point is that it doesn't matter how well you think something through and how much research and theory you put into it and how collaborative it is. And this is, doesn't, of course, go just for building design, but it goes for any kind of project. When you put it into practice you always then encounter something that you could not possibly have thought of and just didn't end up thinking about. And that's just part of the process as we're talking about learning process. So it's an important thing to consider. And also the way that the teachers interact. How are you helping the teachers to change their practice? Now there's no desks in the classroom. There's no teacher desk, sorry. There's no teacher desk in the classroom as in the traditional sense. So that's one change. But how are you helping the teachers as professionals to come together and learn and develop their practice i buy donuts okay <laughs> that's very important too and you make great coffee as i as i remember we, we like a good coffee and I, i'm being facetious but not really <laughs> i bring people together so I, I joke about the donuts but getting people into our collective area in our, our kit and our staff area which is beautiful and i made sure that this space is for staff they are well respected, well supported that, yes, we have good coffee. It's important mm -hmm. that we have fridges. I mean, where there is the microwave debate, but we'll park that, um, you know, beautiful spaces where people can have lunch and just have a moment and be calm and still. So I try to encourage staff to come and use them. So like I said, we put great coffee there. I buy, don I buy donuts. I know it's not the healthiest thing in the world, but it, but everyone loves donuts, and the the dime bar donuts, the the most the most successful ones. <laughs> uh, so every every few weeks, I don't I do it on like random days. We'll buy something in it, and the other staff do it as well. So other staff on a particular day might bring some. I mean, today we got carrot cake. It's it's not all about sweet food. So the first thing we do is we create a space where people can be together and want to be together. They like it. We host different different things there. We the social aspect of our school is really what comes first and the work comes second in a way, because you've got to build the relationships before you can get collaboration. So if you want people to feel safe and to have really difficult conversations, they've got to know who they're with and they've and have a personal relationship with them. This space is facilitating that. The very design of it encourages people to come together and just have that time to hang out. We use it for our staff meetings. We have well, basically any excuse, any excuse to get together. Somebody's about to have a baby. The weather changes. Yes, <laughs> but it's such an important the aspect. Rugby. The rugby, yes. Well, yeah, there we've got you the go. rugby um, thing going on at the moment. Um, I've got South Africa, which is a big issue because we've got a hundred franc voucher for a dinner of, um, in a restaurant for whoever wins. Wow. And at the moment, it looks like I might win. So oh, I might have to back into <laughs> the pool. South, South Africa's got it. Um, but so we we try to create a human environment mm -hmm. and that I provide every opportunity that I can for my staff to talk with each other. That's so important because learning from each other and being able to share experiences is such an incredibly important learning tool. And as you said, 
that needs to be, it's not enough to say, oh, you can go at this time to this room, but to create that environment, to create that sense of community and hosting. And one of the interesting things is this is with your with the staff at the school, but the way bringing uh, people together and learning together, I loved seeing in the hallways, there's these Lego stations, which I've never seen in schools before. And I feel that it would be great in the workplace as well, not just at schools, because as we were walking, there were groups of children huddled around playing with Lego. Can you talk about a little bit about this? And I feel like it would it would be very popular with adults as well. Who doesn't love Lego? Actually, exactly. there are some people. But the majority, so this came because the foundation that supported and fund, helped and funded the school, um, which is a significant investment, is from the Hilti Family Foundation Liechtenstein. Some people may know that the Hilti Family is a power tool company, a global big company. Its head office is here in Liechtenstein, just the other side of the, the Rhine, which is, you can walk from here, so it's not far, to, to the next country. Yes, um, I popped over right after yeah. our visit, and it was extraordinarily <laughs> It still blows my mind as a British person. Exactly. Another country. <laughs> so they're very invested as a company, both and with across the foundation, to support the STEM, uh, STEM and STEAM within schools. And we wanted to make that visible in our school. And you mentioned earlier the fitness suite that we had. Um, well, we have its beautiful fitness suite for students to work out. And that room was actually the woodwork room. This is one of those strange things. The architect had put the woodwork room in. Now, in the International Baccalaureate, we don't teach woodwork. <laughs> we do teach design and woodwork might come into that. But we don't have, like, I mean, it's a lovely thing to have, I suppose. But I really thought about if we're really serious about creating a school where that is um, inquiry at its heart, which we are because we're an IB school and where STEM and STEAM it runs all the way through. I don't want it to be in a room in the basement. What does that say about what you've had? That is something separate to. So I wanted it visible all the way through the school. And then I met Carol from um, Lego Education and the Trust. And we were talking, I was talking at a conference with her a couple of years ago about how could we create those spaces? And then she was talking to me about all the different projects that Lego did. And I thought, this is absolutely perfect. Why don't we create um, Lego stations all the way through our primary school corridor um, that go right from the early years where you have the Duplo. I mean, I love it. They've even got Duplo emotions now that have like the smiley faces, sad faces. So it fits into our PHSC program right the way through to our upper PYP where we have coding, engineering um, tasks that come into the core curriculum. Mm -hmm. So we worked with a design to, um, and of course, when we talked to Hilti about it, they were like, this is marvelous. We love Lego. Everyone loves Lego. So we then spoke to our interior design team and they were like, okay, how are we going to do these benches? So they then designed the benches and we've got the Lego baseboards are basically built into the furniture, which is, is pretty good fun. We've had them in place now about three or four weeks and the students love them. The teachers are getting familiar with the spike resources and we're starting to embed it into the, the teaching and learning program. And also we have opportunities. So if it's a it's a lunchtime, students have their lunch period. In the second half, they can choose what they do, whether they want to play, stay in and play with Lego. If they want to go into the playground, they want to go to the gym, wherever they want to go, they can go. And um, so we have free play with it. And we've got all kinds of amazing um, designs at the moment. I was just walking through earlier and I saw that one student had designed an aircraft and they'd use transparent Lego blocks. So you could, so it looked like it was flying. Oh, <laughs> fantastic. That's wonderful. So we, we're at the early stages of really using resource to 
make sure that wherever you're in our school, our school is a dynamic interesting place to explore it's not cheap i'm not going to lie you know <laughs> it's not the cheapest thing in the world but it will last for years and what better way to visually have stem or steam right at the heart of your school than to have it i mean we've got maybe 10 stations across the primary floor that students have absolute ownership of it is their space absolutely i'm sure it brings them together as well because it is so Sometimes. public. It depends, yes. depends how precious that, that, that craft is. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Good point. We've got a little sign up at the moment on kindergarten saying, please do not touch anything as this design is in development. Oh, so kindergarten are very protective of their individual design. That's designs. very sweet. That's very <laughs> sweet. My goodness, there's so many wonderful features of it and you let it in such an exemplary way that I think so many people can really learn from the different aspects of it. To wrap up, of course, most schools cannot and most uh, workplaces cannot build a completely new building to embody their philosophy and practices. But what is one or two things you would recommend for another school or another organization to take on maybe could be embedded into into another building? I think one of the things I take away and I, and, and build, I mean, honestly, going through a new campus build, I don't know if I would ever do it again. It's wonderful, but it's very painful. I, I think the idea which we all know as educators anyway, but to see your learning, learning isn't what isn't just what happens in the classroom. In fact, probably most learning happens beyond. Um, so if we think about the spaces that we do have, how do we optimize possibility of those spaces to create a learning space in every space? So what does your reception look like? Where, where are your teachers drinking their coffee? Where are they getting their coffee from? Where are your senior school students going? You know, where, where do they like to congregate? So, you know, in NYP students, the, the middle years, they love to go wherever the teachers aren't. You know, you'll always find them in these like little huddles. Uh, so how do you how do you create spaces that support learning? So if you've got like major corridors, what can you do in those corridors that creates great conversation? So those conversation starters or create um, a study space like we have. In, we've got the high chairs that have the soundproofing so you can kind of cozy into them or the hives. So it's not about what you have. It's how you use it. And to come away from the idea that it's all about what is in the classroom itself. So I would make the classrooms themselves as simple as possible and then create as many dynamic spaces that are interesting and different and are nice places to be. And it's not about money. I mean, we are very fortunate here. Um, you know, there's no two ways about it. But I've also worked, you know, earlier in my career in really uh, schools. I worked in um, local inner city state schools, really challenging, like 36 students in a primary class, um, high levels of deprivation, no money in the school. But you can do really clever things in those spaces. And I've seen some of the most, the most creative responses in schools that don't have the money because they have to be. And so what I would say is to think about the canvas that you have and see if you can use every single bit of the canvas it's not just about the bit in the middle that's wonderful that's a beautiful visual think about the canvas that you have that's really nice well thank you so much liz i really appreciate you sharing your process and insights and fantastic space that you've developed thank you great talking to you <laughs> <laughs> Bye -bye. thank you